Chapter 8 of On. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aubrey Kinzer. On by Hilaire Belloc. On the Cathedral of Seville and the Misanthrope. I, within one week, experienced, felt, saw, and handled with my mind the two chief creations of the human spirit, a marvelous piece of luck. I heard Mass in Seville Cathedral on an autumn Sunday. The Sunday after, I sat at the Francais, marveling at the misanthrope. These two creations, the one in stone, the other in the verb, are, so far as I know, the summit of our European creative power, and therefore of the world. They praise the Giralda of Seville, the great tower outside the cathedral, and they are right, but they are wrong when they praise it with a more or less conscious motive of crying up Islam and running down their own blood. The beauty of the Giralda is not in Islamic beauty, though Islam built the most of it. It is what it is because Europe repairs and finishes. If you doubt it, you may go and look at its twin tower, the great tower of Hassan on the hill above Rabat. That huge brown tower at Rabat looks over the Atlantic seas, towards its sister, the Giralda, an imperfect thing looking at a perfected thing, a thing essentially weak because not permanent, looking at a symbol of permanence. A thing destined to ruin, looking at a thing destined to life. And I say, in the mauger of the teeth of those with whom I disagree, that the Giralda would not be the Giralda but for its Christian cap. However, there it stands, useful at least as a contrast. For if the Giralda be very beautiful, as it is, what is it compared to the cathedral itself? That building can never be excelled. Our race once, in one great moment of three centuries, reached its highest level. We shall hardly return to such a summit. The Gallic spirit had created the Gothic. The unfathomed suggestion of the perfect ogive, of the uplifted arch of sixty degrees, had spread from Paris outward. It had built all the ring of great shrines, Chartres, Beauvais, Amiens, Rennes. It was proceeding in outer circles to Britain, and even to the Rhine and beyond, and on through the Reconquista southwards, shooting up Burgos like a fire, and planting the nobility of Oviedo and Lyon, when the Christian cavalry entered Seville and began the last and the noblest of all those things. What a mood of making, what an enlarging passion to produce and to form and to express, must have possessed the men who through those centuries completed that thing. It is everything from the thirteenth century to the Reyes Catolicos. It is everything from St. Ferdinand to Ferdinand and Isabella. Castile rode in and made this marvelous thing. I wonder what Aragon would have done. Often, as I have gone down the banks of that torrent, which is also a god, and which gave its name to a mighty kingdom, often, as I have gone down the gorge of the Pyrenees with the Aragon tumbling at my side, 
I've meditated upon its spirit. Broader, I think, less piercing, with more grasp, less thrust, than the chivalry to the west, than the raiders of Castile. Suffused, I think, with the Catalan spirit, though they would hate to be told it, and in some way at once less solemn and yet more solid. That was Aragon. But Aragon had no chance to spread south. It was blocked. It was Castile that rode in and made this thing the Cathedral of Seville. And in making it, Castile made the greatest monument which the race of men can boast. There is some unexplained power in proportion which not only symbolizes, not only suggests, but actually presents that which has no proportions, the illimitable vastness, eternity. There is a mystery about just proportion. It has this magic about it, that it can express at once both the sublime and the merely accurate. It will suggest repose. It will suggest a disdainful superiority to inferior things. It carries a patent of nobility always, but in rare times and places, it can also affect what I have said, the vision of the eternal. A man in the Cathedral of Seville understands the end of his being. He is, while standing there on earth, surrounded by stones and rocks of the earth, with his own body in decay and all about him in decay. He is, in the midst of all this material affair, yet in some side manner out of it all. He is half in possession of the final truths. Nowhere else in the world that I know of has the illimitable fixed itself in material. Divinity is here impetricate. It is not only proportion that does this at Seville, it is also multiplicity. It is not only that mark of true creative power, the making of something more than that you meant to make. It is also that other mark of creative power, diversity, endless breeding, burgeoning, foison, which everywhere clothes this amazing result. Seville has not, in proportion to its area, its great space, the actual number of carven things which glorify Brew, the jewel of the house of Savoy. It is not perhaps any one statue which will match the immortal Magdalene of Brew, or her cousin Catherine, or the modern and, to my astonishment, German little sandstone Madonna of Treves, which I have written of in this book, nor that other Madonna praying to her own self, which for a long time I believed to be the loveliest figure in the world. I mean the one over the southern porch of Rennes, the barbaric ineptitude missed it, and it still remains. But if Seville has not some one statue, it has the effect of multiplicity more greatly developed than any other building I know. And here again you will ask yourself in vain, as the creators of Seville themselves would have asked themselves in vain, how that effect arose. It is so. And there stands Seville. If you would know how silence can be full, and how a supreme unity can be infinitely diverse, 
if you would touch all the mysteries and comprehend them as well as they can be comprehended within the limits of our little passage through the daylight, you must see Seville. But do not go there in Holy Week. And the misanthrope. The supreme art of words is to produce a multiple and profound effect with simplicity in construction. There is hardly in this masterpiece one phrase which is not the phrase of convention or of daily use, where the words are not the words that men used, or the sentences the sentences they used at the court of Louis XIV, then they are the words conventionally used in the heroic couplets of that day, and each character has a set of lines to declaim, not very much, and there is, you may say, no rhetoric, and there is, you may say, no lyric, no deliberate poignancy. One might venture a paradox and say that in the misanthrope there was no effect, meaning no sudden, sharp, contrasted effect. This mighty comedy of Moliere's represents no more than the simplest conjunction, the everyday business of a man who expects too much of mankind, who is in love and expects too much of the lady, who has a friend, a man who gives him good advice, and another friend, a woman, who herself would marry him willingly enough, and who yet advises him quietly, and is more a support than a lover. There is hardly any plot, merely the discovery that the young widow for whom the misanthrope feels such passion is a chatterbox and runs her friends down behind their backs for the sake of a tattle. There is the fatuous bad versifier. There are the silly men of the world. Such are the materials of the misanthrope, common stones, and into them a man did once breathe such life that he made a thing standing quite apart from all his other creations, and something higher than anything any other had accomplished. What depths and further depths! What suggestions to the left and to the right! What infinite complexity of real character! And just that infinite complexity of real character exists in all of us, shines through those few pages, illumines and glorifies two hours of acting on a stage. There is perhaps no man intelligent and sensitive, and having passed the age of forty, who will not, as he watches the acting of the misanthrope, see all that he knows of life passing before him, and sounding exactly in tune with the vibrations of his own soul. There is passionate love, intense and disappointed, and there is the foil to passion, that large, that honest, that domestic thing which rare women possess, and when they possess it, afford food, sustenance, sacrament to the life of men. There is friendship, there is the ideal sought and unattained, there is the disappointment to which all noble souls are doomed. There is all human story put into one little frame. How? No one can tell how. Moliere himself could not have told how. When those simple words, spoken quickly and in a low tone, more bleu, faut-il que je vous aime, are heard, the man's whole self, his whole past, if he is loved fully, 
his security, his doubt, all of him respond. Why? I cannot tell. I only know that the great poets do it, and they themselves do not know how. It is the muse. It is something divine. It is inspiration. It is inspiration. That word was justly framed. It would seem that among the few consolations afforded to the miserable race of men, among the little hints of a possible coming beatitude, the Creator has especially chosen from his storehouse this gem, this priceless gem of poetical power. I am reminded of it when I read the foolish judgment so often repeated that the ancients had no landscape. Oiramin Oka, Thesua and Lucies Uries Pioni Dames. When I read that, I see what I think Flaxman saw the sunlight on the Aegean, the Asian hills, and the fertile plain between. I feel the warmer air. Yet is there not one word which describes these things, unless you accept the common word and symbol which says that Lycia is rich? Tennyson did it too, and the moon was full. So did Byron. The moon is up, and yet it is not night. So did Shakespeare in Gentle and Low, an Excellent Thing in Woman. So did Virgil at Inania Regna. So do they all. But Moliere in The Misanthrope did it all the time. It is not single lines, though I have quoted one. It is the whole river of the thing, high in flood tide, up to the top of its banks, broad, deep, majestic, and upon a scale to which, one would have thought, mere man could never reach. All that. For two hours, hearing this thing, I was quite outside the world, and the memory of it is a possession which should endure, I think, forever. By which word I mean, even beyond the limitations of this life. But therein I may be wrong. End of chapter 8